I'm also going to record for the for the podcast. So, you know, sometimes I'm like, I I, I love I love to share and I love to teach and uh, um. We were, we were, I was recently a guest for Healing Journeys Today with my daughter, Allison. And within, uh, like within a few days, we had 7,000 views and, and people are saying like, we love your dad. You know, this is really, this is a message that's, that's really bringing a lot of freedom. You know, um, we need to hear more of this. This is, this is liberating us. This is amazing. This is what we need. And uh, I, I do understand that um, I, I am in a, a lane, I am in a grace lane that n- not not too many people are and in or, or, you know, understand. And sometimes I ask the Lord, I'm like, Lord, well, do, do I, you know, do I keep on going? What, what do I keep doing? Do I keep on sharing? Because his grace just is, is so liberating and, and it has freed me and it has freed Lori so very much. And and um, I will never let anybody, I don't care who they are, tell me I need to do something, I must do something, I have to do something, there's more, that, 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 that there has to be more involved, uh, you know, I have to work at becoming righteous, I have to work at becoming holy. No, I'm not, I'm not letting anybody tell me that anymore. I don't care who they are, I don't care what their name is, I don't care who their, what their initials are. It's just not happening. I'm not living, in, in, I'm not living under the law. And I'm not living under the mixture. And um, I, I do understand that even, even you know, we're going to be talking about revelation. And I'm not going to tell you what I believe, okay? I'm not telling you this is what I believe because I don't want you to believe what I believe, you know, because I believe it. I'm going to teach you and I'm going to tell you how to hermeneutically and historically and contextually and, and, and in relevance to the speaker, to the listener, to the hearers, you know, I'm going to teach you how or tell you how you to go in there into the word of God and do that yourselves. And then you're going to come up with really what you believe and where you stand and and who, you know, and why. Okay? Because you know, for 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 most of my Christian life, you know, I, I thought I knew the Bible. I pretty, I pretty much, I knew the Bible. I read the Bible, read through it every year, did my devotions, you know, um, did my studies, you know, listened, listened to preachers. Um, but for the most part, I never, I never knew how to, you know, the Bible from, you know, believe, I mean, believe it or not, since we since we started, okay, guys, I hope you've kept your notes. We've talked about the purpose of the Bible. You know, uh, we've talked about how to understand the, the theology of the Bible, the different types of theology. Uh, we, we talked about hermeneutics. Um, we talked about exegesis and eisegesis, which if I asked you guys to tell me what they were, I, I don't know if you guys can tell me what exegesis is right now to this moment, or what eisegesis is. But that's in your notes. You know, we talked about different kinds of study forms. We, t- we talked about, um, um, let me see, what other things that we go over the notes? I'm, I'm amazed. The authority of the Bible, we talked about um, inspiration. Um, we talked about doctrine, theology, uh, we talked about inerrancy versus infallibility. Um, we talked about filters. I mean, I'm looking at these notes that I've gone over. We've gone over for six weeks or six lessons, six or seven, seven lessons. And I'm like, you don't get this stuff at Bible school. You don't get this stuff from your churches. And I just hope that, you know, you're going back in the notes and, and really taking them to heart. Because like I said, my... My heart is not for you to believe what I believe, okay? I believe I believe the truth. But my heart is not for you to believe what I believe. My heart is for you to know what you believe and why you believe what you believe. And and, and it's not because you follow somebody, you know? uh, You follow this person or you follow that person. And um, I want you to know what you... and, and, And 
And, and I, I believe that many people who listen to Lori and I, you know, like I said, Healing Journeys Today, six, 7,000 people. I mean, and now more, peop- more and more people are following my, my, uh, my YouTube page, which please pass it, pass it on. Leonard Roller Ministries. I made it very easy to find. New Life Church, there's so many New Life Churches, New Life Ministry, there's a million New Life Ministries, but there's only one Leonard Roller. So I, I made it Leonard Roller Ministry, so it's easy to find. Um, more and more people are following, and, and, and the messages I'm getting are amazing. But I understand, I understand one thing. We listen to lots of people. We, we listen to lots of people. Um, me, not so much anymore. There, you know... There's only a couple of people that I listen to. My ears, I have gates. My eyes, I have gates. And um, I, I, I realize that people will listen to me. I, I, on a Saturday, I'll preach a, a faith-based grace message without any law or legalism or, or mixture at all. And I'll get people going, wow, that's amazing. That's exciting. Oh, praise the Lord, right? And then we'll have another message come up that's filled with legalism and filled with mixture. And I watched the same group who responded the way they did to my my grace-based, grace-filled message. And, and they'll respond, Lori, right? Am I telling the truth? They'll say the same thing. Wow, amen. Praise the Lord. Wow. And that's just telling me they don't have right filters yet. And they don't have the right understanding, you know, because uh, you can't say amen, praise the Lord, glory to God. Wow, pastor, that's awesome to some of the things you hear from me. And then some of the things we're hearing from from other people that has mixture involved and, and legalism involved and say, you know, praise the Lord, hallelujah, glory to God there. You know, we and so my, my heart's content. My, my heart is that you would know for you that you would know for you, and you would know why. And so if I could sit down with you and say, hey, Diane Morgan, I heard you. You know, you got very excited with that message. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. What, what excited you about it? What, and you'd be able to tell me with conviction why it blessed you, why, you know, it, uh, it, it spoke to you, why you've grasped, grabbed hold of it, and why you accept it as, as, as truth. And many a times, I'm not saying I just picked on Diane Morgan because her face is right there in the middle. Hey, Diane, I just use her. But, but, but many times, you know, we, we don't know why. It's because it's the lane that we are comfortable with or a part of or have been involved in. I have people all the time, you know, telling me, you know, Pastor, uh, I hear what you're saying, man, and it's amazing. But when I try to implement and when I try to share with it, my, all, the, all the people who I know love the Lord and have served the Lord and been following the Lord for all these years are telling me that it's wrong and I'm in error or whatever. And, and, you know, they, and well, who do I believe? You know, listen, that's what this is about. So go through those notes, study those notes, okay? And, 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 and use them because the Bible we know what it's for. It's for it's to reveal Jesus Christ. And in revealing Jesus Christ, we're revealed. And the Bible is, is not dispensationalism. Okay? It's not dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a system that fails. And when we, we went over dispensationalism, it's a system that fails. And um, and right now we're supposed to be, you know, it was with Noah, it was the fall of the garden, then it was the fall with Noah, the, the, the flood, you know, then Abraham, and, 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 and we have moved into the dispensation of the law and how that failed, and now we're in the dispensation of the church age and the grace age, you know, and dispensationalism by its very definition is a failing system, okay? Well, guess what? I just did a message this past uh, week, I think I did, I'm not sure where I did it on, but... Uh, of his kingdom, there will be no end, and the gates of hell will not prevail about uh, prevail against his kingdom. And grace never fails. So this dispensation, dispensation, dispensationalism, the church age, grace age, it doesn't fail. So if it doesn't fail, and we really believe that, I mean, how can we believe that grace fails? 
and that the church, the kingdom of God, Jesus said of my king, of this kingdom, there will be no end and the gates of hell won't prevail against this kingdom. So Jesus has told us that it's not going to fail and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. So if he's telling us that, how could we adhere to dispensationalism that tells us that the church age will, will, will be, will, will end because just like anything else, the, the, the age of grace, it will, it's going to fail, you know, and then God's going to have to destroy everything and bring in the, the millennial thousand, you know, it's dispensationalism is the flawed system. So, you know, w w what we talked about is the Bible is, is a historical book. It's a historical book. And we have to understand that. And if we don't go into the proper hermeneutics and look at historically what took place and what was meant, and, and, and this is a key, and I never knew this, but I know it now, speaker relevance and reader relevance. What was the relevance, you know, of what was being taught, what was being said, what was being written to the person that was speaking it and to the people that were hearing it? That's most important in, 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 in interpreting the Bible. You know, we're going to talk about Revelation. We're going to start talking about Revelation. I'm telling you what, Revelation is a really, there's a reason why a lot of people don't talk, teach on Revelation because it's... Uh, is a lot there, okay? But for instance, like reader relevance, if I was supposed to write something in code today, I, I don't know. Let's just say I'm gonna write uh, a letter to you guys warning you. I'm gonna say, listen, you have to beware, you know, of that red dragon. That red dragon wants to, you know, enslave and control and and all people and, and rule over all people and, uh, and, 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 they're, and they're friends with, with, uh, um, with, with, with the iron and the sickle, uh, the ha you know, the hammer and the sickle, they're friends with the hammer and the sickle, and even the nation who's, who follows the eagle, the mighty eagle has fallen, you know. So if I write that now, okay, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, people aren't going to know what I'm talking about. They're not going to know what I'm talking about, especially if those countries don't exist anymore. Huh? But you see, right now, I'm writing to you guys for you guys to, to, to warn you, and I'm doing it in such a code and in such a way where you know I'm talking about China, I'm talking about Russia, I'm talking about the United States. Is that making sense? A little bit? Okay, so now you use that to understand, especially when we get into the book of Revelation, this, this, these writings in the book of Revelation, okay, seem to be so obscure to us when it's talking about candlesticks and angels and, and dragons and the beast and this and that. But guess what? In the historical ap apocryphal, apocryphal writings of that day, that symbolism was prevalent. It wasn't symbolism that was specific and particular to John. It was a symbolism that was well-known, well-read, and well-understood. And if you look in histor history and you, and you use your historical, hermeneutical context and you go into other historians of that time, that day and age, um, other apocryphic, how do you say it? Apocryphal books, all right? You're going to find, wow, that's not obscure symbolism. That was something that they understood in that time and in that day, and it has specific meaning meaning for them, you know? And, and, and then, you know, you have to, you have to hermeneutically go and, and, and historically go into the scriptures and find out what is being said when Jesus in Mark, in Luke, and in Matthew, especially the, the discourse at the Mount of Olivet, he's talking about heaven and earth, heaven and earth. Now, John doesn't talk about it in his gospel, 
Perhaps he waited, you know, this is why it's in Revelation, because he's dealing, he could be dealing with the same time scheme and in the same situation. And you, ha and you have to ask yourself. Now, I've talked to learned men who, who people revere, and they will look at me and they will tell me, AD 70 has absolutely no significance whatsoever. And I'm like, AD 70 would not have meant anything for me maybe 10 years ago especially 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. But it has amazing, an amazingly amount of significance to me now. Because contextually, hermeneutically, and historically, I've gone and I understand full well what those people, not only in that day, previous to that day, how they viewed the temple, how they viewed the inner court and the outer court, how they viewed its structure, how they viewed the temple as heaven and earth. And they, and you see that in its divisions. And so when Jesus talks about, you know, uh, heaven and earth will pass away until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle shall be whatever, uh, uh, what's the word, Lori? Disappear or whatever, gone from the law, from the law. You know the scripture I'm talking about. So if heaven and earth meant heaven and earth, well, heaven and earth has not disappeared. So anybody that tells you it's not talking about the temple is, half, is going to have to then tell us then why are we not under the Big Ten and the 613 ceremonial laws? Because according to what Jesus said there, until heaven and earth disappear, right? We are supposed to be, we are to be under the Big Ten and under the 613. So it's telling you there, it's got to mean something else. And then you look at, I'm reading an historical book right now from Josephus. He's an historian back, you know, back in the, in the days where Jerusalem was besieged by Rome and he's talking about all that took place and, and how they, 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 they came and, and, and the different walls, some were hard to penetrate, some were a little bit easier, but they finally, the, the massive pen, penetration to the city and the massive destruction, and it, it's, just, it's just amazing. And so when you understand what took place there and when you understand what took place with the temple, how it was just leveled, and it was put on fire. It was put on fire. Why? They wanted to melt the gold. They wanted the gold. They wanted to burn the gold. Well, you know, it makes perfect sense. Now, when you look at Peter and he's warning about heaven and earth reserved for the day of fire, you're like, that's only one verse in the whole New Testament. And people are talking about God's going to destroy the world with fire. Well, if you don't understand hermeneutics, History, history, reader relevance, reader importance, you're going to come up with other in, in, in conclusions. So I'm not telling you to believe what I believe. I'm telling you to just don't believe what people tell you, to go in and use your own God-given wisdom and God-given intelligence, especially with the um, study aids and tools that we have to go in there and find out what was being said, who was saying it, who was listening, what was the relevance of that day and time. And then it will help us with, with, with our, you know, with our relevance. Um, for instance, I, I just, I just, uh, I, I did a study and um, I'm going to be teaching it next week. But I found, oh, listen, listen to this. This is from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government. This is talking about Jesus, okay? Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Do you hear what that's saying? This is saying about Jesus. Jesus, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom and to establish it with judgment and with justice and henceforth even forevermore. 
And so this is a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7 that with the coming of Jesus, right? The coming of Jesus, he was going to be setting up his kingdom. And he did when he came. All right? The kingdom of God. Behold, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And so right there, that's a, there's, a, there's a prophecy that his kingdom is never going to end. His peace is never going to end. He's always going to reign. So to think that it's, there's going to be a failure, that's going to go against Bible prophecy. And then in Daniel, it says, And in the days of, of these kings shall be the God of heaven, set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou saw, sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God had made known to the, to the king what shall come to pass thereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation, you know, uh, thereof. And so you understand it's talking about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Now the angel comes, and when Jesus is born, he's talking about here's the king that was prophet promised. He's the king, his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And in Matthew chapter 16, where Peter says, Jesus asks, who, who do you say I am? And Peter says, thou art the, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, flesh didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. And upon this proclamation, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So you look at prophecy, you look at scriptures, you look at the angels' declaration, you look at Jesus' own words. He said the kingdom of God is like a lump of, a lump of uh, dough that, that is at leaven, a little leaven, you know, and, and, it, and it works its way through the whole lump of dough. This is supposed to be a never-ending and ever-expanding kingdom. It's not one that's going to fail or, or fall. And so when you understand all that, and it's, it's important now as you now go into, and we will in the book of Revelation. But before we go there, I at least want to finish out one more covenant. Abrahamic covenant, okay? Now remember, my covenant I will not break nor alter the words that comes forth from my lips. Okay? Right? Very important, because as we led off with, with, with the Abrahamic covenant, all right, God made a covenant with Abraham. The first thing he said to Abraham was never again. He makes covenant with Abraham, uh, with uh, Noah, I'm sorry, with Noah. And he can't break his covenant. And it's not dependent upon Noah. It's all dependent upon God. And he says, never again will I ever destroy the earth and its inhabitants. Never again. That's the first, the first time he says it. He doesn't make any, any in, in, instances or, uh, not instances. He doesn't make any, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, he, he doesn't mention fire. He just says, look it up for yourselves, guys. I never again will destroy the earth. And all its inhabitants, you know, never again will I do that. Now, later on, further on, another chapter, you know, it says I'm not going to destroy it by a flood again, you know. So, so you know, you got to look at that and you're going to say, wait a second, is he's not going to destroy it again by a flood? Or he's never going to destroy it all again, you know, period. He's never going to destroy it again, period. He's certainly, I'm not going to destroy it again by a flood. Oh. So now we come to the New Testament and there's one obscure verse that we don't know how to handle where it talks about fire. Oh, God is going to destroy the earth by fire because he promised he's not going to destroy the earth by water. I'm telling you, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's ridiculous. Please forgive me, but that's ridiculous. I hope you think it is too, but that's okay. You don't have to. Just as long as you know what you believe and why you believe it. All right. So now we're looking at the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was the second of the five major biblical covenants. 
Now, I just want you to know we're going to stop with Abraham to get into Revelation, and then we're going to come back because so many of you want to have asked me questions about Revelation, and we're going to have a good time with it. So the Abraham covenant and, and, and uh, canons span a much longer time period um, than the Noahic covenant. It's basically found in Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 25, but it spans pretty much all of all of Genesis until chapter chapter 50. And it's important to understand and realize that this covenant right here, this Abrahamic covenant, God didn't want this covenant to end. The next covenant, the the Moic, the Moic covenant, the covenant of law, the people asked for that. They asked for it and and God gave what they asked for. God wanted them to remain in this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is significant to the new covenant, our new covenant, all right? Because there's a lot of parallels. There are a lot of parallels. And of course, the Abrahamic covenant is mentioned um, a lot in the New Testament. Essentially, God called Abraham out and promised to make Abraham's name great, even though Abraham was not looking to have a great name, all right? The Lord just gave it to him. And we often, we often think of Abraham as the father of faith, but he was not actually called by God to start a new religion. Instead, he was called to start a new nation, and that nation would eventually become Israel. And what God's intent was through the nation of Israel, that as they walked in this Abrahamic covenant, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the entire world at that time would see this nation and see how blessed they are, and through the blessings that were bestowed upon them, they would be drawn, and then they too would believe in and serve, you know, the come to the God of God of Abraham through His goodness and 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 through His blessings, which parallels the gospel of grace. Okay, it's God's goodness that leads men to a changing of direction a changed heart it's his goodness it's his loving kindness it's 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 a um a new covenant of love you know and of mercy where mercy triumphs over judgment um he know he knew and he and he he believed and he came to the understanding that god promised to bless him to make his name great to make this new nation great and I think it's interesting if you look at Peter, Peter chapter, First uh, Peter, I think it's chapter two, verse nine, where it says we are a holy nation, right? We are a chosen nation, a royal people, a uh, people for God's own possession, that we would declare the excellencies of, you, you know the, the scripture, scripture I'm talking about. This was God's intent for Israel, that the whole, and that the whole world you know, would enter into this, this covenant agreement just by seeing the blessing and by seeing God's goodness. Um, and uh, make his name great, this new nation great, and bless the whole earth through him. Bless the whole earth through him. He did not understand that God was separating him from the surrounding people in order to create a new religion. That's not what, uh, that's not what Abraham believed. And so there at the end of chapter 12, we see a great famine that takes place and Abraham goes to Egypt. And I put this there because it's interesting because believe it or not, there are a lot of, a lot of Christians, all right, a lot of people in general that believe that, that while the um, Hebrews were enslaved for 400 years, that what they were building with the bricks or whatever and the stones or whatever is they're the ones that built the pyramids. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that. But uh, people often imagine the pyramids in Egypt were built by the Hebrew slaves during their years in Egypt. However, history indicates that the pyramids were built approximately 500 years before Abraham even arrived into Egypt. So, you know, and what's what's awesome, what's awesome, and when I was... The Nephilim, right? Yeah, yeah, the Nephilim, whatever you think, yeah, whatever. The, the aliens, they came with, uh, yeah, they came. They all came and helped, but anyway. <laughs> so what, what's interesting? What I was studying, what I was studying these out the covenants, and they were talking about this period of time. And this guy that I was studying from, 
who I, I, I hold in high esteem. I really do. I have a lot of his books and uh, I learned a lot from him. But he even in his book indicated, you know, that, for instance, this is a little side note, that the children of Israel were enslaved for 400 years. That's what I believe for like many years out of my, you know, my, in my Christian walk. I believed they were enslaved for 400 years. That's, what's, that's what it's told. Hey, look. I love Andrew. I even heard Andrew say they were enslaved for 400 years. So listen, it, a lot of people believe that. But then one day I'm just reading the Bible for itself. And it, and it says they will be, you know, strangers in a foreign land, you know, uh, for 400 years and enslaved. It really doesn't say they were going to be enslaved for 400 years. It says they would be in a foreign land for 400 years. Okay. All right. That makes sense, especially when you go to... Exodus, where Exodus says, all of a sudden, a man who knew not Joseph, a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, rose up and saw how numerous the Hebrews had become. Well, first of all, the Jews, uh, Abraham, uh, no, no, it wasn't Abraham, it was Isaac and his children, the 12, the 12 sons. The 70 of them moved to Egypt, right? The land of Goshen, when Joseph was 30 years old. And Joseph lived to be 110. So they lived 70 or 80 years with Joseph. And then even more so after Joseph died to when Exodus tells us to the point where a Pharaoh grew up and didn't know Joseph or didn't remember Joseph. And he looked and he said, look how numerous they are. Now, listen, guys, 70 people is not numerous. Look how numerous they are. We better do something or they might rise up with our enemies and, and fight against us. So that's when they put, us in, put them in slavery. So it wasn't 400 years. And then when you look at Paul, okay, Paul is amazing. I love Paul. And in Paul, in, in, in Galatians chapter 3, it talks about when Abraham received this promise, okay, and then it says, and when the law came, it, it didn't nullify the promise. But it makes a very interesting point. It says, when the law came 430 years after the promise, it didn't nullify it. And so you say 430 years, 430 years from when Abraham was given the promise they weren't in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. And Paul is even justifying it and, and testifying to it. And then why does Paul say 430 when, when 400 is mentioned? Well, that's because in year 390, Moses kills an Egyptian. He gets caught out. He's afraid. And he flees to the desert for 40 years. So God speaks to him after 40 years. And he comes back. And that's when the nation of Israel, you know, um, is, is, is redeemed away from the nation of Egypt. And so from the time Abraham was given this covenant, this promise, till that day, it was 430 years. So when you read the Bible and you understand historical hermeneutics and contextual hermeneutics and ex exegesis, you're not going to be hoodwinked. I promise you. So look at cutting the covenant. So God cuts the covenant with Abraham, and I have this here with you. And in other, in other words, what was being done was God was declaring his obligation to Abraham to fulfill the covenant. But it, this, is, this is awesome. This is why it relates to grace. But it did not hinge on Abraham fulfilling his part. Abraham did not have a part to fulfill. Okay. If he had a part to fulfill, he would have been awake and walked through the animals, right? When the covenant was being cut with God as God was walking through. This shows us what type of covenant God made with Abraham. And in those days, there were three types of covenants that were common. And history shows this. Um, there are historical writings called the Hammurabi Hammurabi tablets, Hammurabi writings that goes back into the historical time that talks about various covenants that 
people had with kings, that kings had with other kings, that countries had with other countries. There were basically three types of covenants. There was the grant covenant, and that was a covenant when a greater and a lesser person came into covenant, and the greater one took on all the obligations. The lesser one only needed to receive the covenant. That was the covenant that God made with Abraham. It was a grant covenant. God made all, God made and met all the requirements. God met and all the up and, and fulfilled all the obligations. All Abraham was, was a recipient of the blessings from the greater. God was the greater and Abraham was the lesser. And that parallels our covenant of grace, where now it's between God the Father and God the Son. We have no obligations on how we're supposed to walk, on what we're supposed to do, on how we're supposed to live. Now listen, of course, grace and being one with Jesus and being one and being one and led by the Holy Spirit and Christ's empowerment living within us. We're not going to go out and rob a bank. We're not going to go out and, 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 and murder somebody or whatever. We're just not going to do that. That's not what grace is all about. But the covenant parallels this covenant, the grant covenant. And um, the kinship covenant, that's the second covenant. And that was a covenant that was made between two, uh, two equal parties, just like in a marriage. Each party took on a small list of obligations in the covenant. This type of covenant had a small set of obligations and was very evenly divided between the two parties. A kinship covenant was also referred to as a, a parity covenant. And what's interesting about that is, is this writer um, used marriage as an example of a kinship covenant. And how many times have you heard when, when couples go to marriage counseling or, or they heard it said or they... They, 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 they heard it sp spoken out that, that marriage is a 50-50 relationship. You know, you got your part, she's got her part. I got my part, Lori's got her part. Okay? And um, that's where they get this from, the kin kin kinship covenant. And a kinship covenant is not the best of covenants. You know, it has faults and it has flaws. And there it goes. Even marriages that are built on 50-50 relationships, 50-50, you do your part, I do my part. Most of the times they fail. And this is why Christ came in, in his covenant and means, no, you know what? Love your wife like I love the church and gave your life and gave my, and gave my life for it. In other words, it's 100%. It's 100%, period. That's, that's, that's the thinking and that's the but I just thought that was interesting, interesting in how a large part marriage outside of Christianity, because this is not the way it's supposed to be in Christianity, has 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 morphosized into 50-50. You do your part, I do my part. I know a lot of people that have that kind of relationship. Listen, I do this, you do that. I did this, now it's your turn to do that. Right, Lord? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. God forbid if somebody doesn't do their 50%. Woo! All H-E double, ho double ho hockey sticks breaks out. All right, then there's the third, the vassal covenant. Ooh, this is not a good covenant. The vassal covenant was when a greater and a lesser person came into covenant based on the greater one's ability to destroy the lesser one. And instead yeah. of destruction, the greater one offered the lesser one safety in exchange for the ability to collect taxes and tribute, take slaves, and so forth. Typically, this happened when a king conquered a nation and offered the people of that nation their lives in exchange for a level of servitude to his harsh rule. As a result, in this covenant, the greater person had all the power and the lesser person had to fulfill a larger number of ob obligations. A vassal covenant was also referred to as a suzerain covenant. God simply came to Abraham and made promises that he would fulfill without stipulations or obligations on his part. And nobody disputes that, which is amazing. But yet, when it comes to the covenant of grace, sometimes that gets disputed. Now, the vassal covenant, you, you can see that um, 
with the nation of Israel, for example, uh, you know, God wanted, they wanted their own, they, they didn't want the Abrahamic covenant. They, they didn't want to deal with God like one-on-one, individually, talk to God like Moses. They say, no, you talk, you talk to, to God and then you tell us what he said. And, and from then, that's where, that's where the judges came. All right. Let somebody else, let God speak to somebody else. Then you speak, speak to us. And, and that, that was part of the, the Mosaic law covenant. But then the Mosaic law covenant turned into a, a vassal covenant, not only the law, but a vassal covenant. And you see this when, when the nation of Israel was asking for a king. And I think it was Samuel. Samuel said, you guys don't know what you're asking for. You don't want a king. Because if you enter into a king, that's going to be a vassal covenant and it's going to be worse on you than it ever was before. Because he's going to be the greater, you're going to be the lesser, you're going to, be, you're going to have to pay tax, you're going to have to live the way he wants you to live, where you, and that's why, and then there were some good kings that, that treated the people nice, and there were some bad kings that treated the people really bad, but that's the vassal covenant and that's the covenant they asked for and that's the covenant they lived in. So I hope this makes sense, all right? So far so good? Yes, awesome. No? No comments? Good. So far, so good? So far, so awesome. All right. I got a thumbs up from Diane. All right, here we go. So now, that's the Abrahamic covenant. And the most important thing, again, like I said, was, uh, what did I say? No stipulations, no obligations, period. Period. Just faith. And what was faith? Abraham believed God. He believed him. That's it. He believed God. And it was reckoned to him as unto righteousness. We believe God, right? We believe God. It's reckoned unto us as righteousness, right? We're made righteous, justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And that righteousness automatically qualifies us for everything, period. Qualified. All right, now, Revelation. Ugh. I'm not looking forward to this. I am looking forward to this anyway. It's important, all right? It's important as you look at Revelation, I have this here, to remember proper hermeneutics. Contextual, historical, cultural significance coupled with speaker and reader relevance. Have to understand that. Have to understand that. So I'm writing an important letter to you guys on something that's going to, you know, Something that's going to take place, right? Whatever. No, I'm just writing an important letter. So now, I'm delivering it to you guys. Let me see. I can see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people up there. Seven churches. Seven people. I'm writing you the letters, okay? Warnings. I'm documenting it. All right? We're going to be looking at different approaches. Futurist. Historical, we're going to be looking at different approaches. But here it is. It really has no significance to you guys. None at all. Because it's not for you. It's for people thousands of years later. Right? But, just to fool them, when I address them in the opening chapter, I say, and I'm writing to these seven churches, to you seven churches. I want you to take heed. I want you to know that these things will happen soon. All right? I'm writing to you and telling you that these things will happen soon. You wait them all? Huh? So keep 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 that in mind, okay? Keep that in mind. All right. I want to look I have the four views in front of you. These are the four views. And you guys right now, and I don't know what view you would hear to, but right now you guys fall into one of these categories. These are the four main views of historical views of the book book of revelation now keep in mind all the symbolism in the book of revelation was not foreign to the listeners or to the readers okay and 
one thing I uncovered was I always thought that John, you know, you hear all the stories that they tried to kill John, but they couldn't, they couldn't. They dipped him in a vat of, vat of, a vat of, of hot burning oil and he survived. You know, they just couldn't kill him, you know? And so they exiled him to an island of Patmos. But historically, you can't find that anywhere. And when Paul when when John makes this address, he's he he he's, he just simply says while on the while uh, at Patmos, while on Patmos. And what a lot of believe or many believe now was he wasn't exiled there. It was one of his missionary. It was a missionary journey, just like it was when Paul went you know, on his Macedonian journeys, on his other journeys where, where he visited his other, the other lands that he visited and whatever. And so what he was on a journey and, 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 and meeting there and delivering, he gave this, this, um, this message. Um, so I thought that was interesting. So he didn't, he didn't, you know, live out his life in obscurity on a, some deserted island and then, you know, get this revelation at, you know, the age of 90 or 95 years of old, of age and, you know, and then write it down. Anyway, four approaches to revelation. The historical approach. This is the classical Protestant interpretation of the book. It sees the book of Revelation as a pre-written record of the course of history from the time of John to the end of the world. Fulfillment is thus considered to be in progress at present and has been unfolding for nearly 2,000 years. And, you know, we're very familiar with that view. I'm, I'm very familiar with that view. My wife has to go to the bathroom. She just left. But anyway, <laughs> she's going to kill me. Anyway, I remember, and my mom remembers, back in 1977, 78, somewhere in there, um or a little bit after that, the book, The Late Great Planet Earth came out, Hal Lindsey and The Late Great Planet Earth. And it was just, it was just amazing, uh, you know, how it just talked about the end times and, and the correlation of what was happening at the time. Again, what the prophecies of Revelation and, and from there, it's, it, it, it uh, sprung forth all the Left Behind movies. I don't know if you remember the movies Left Behind. And I'll tell you what, I lived in fear. I lived in fear, you know, because I had a preacher that not only, um, you know, the Mark of the Beast. Uh, and again, I'm not telling you what I believe or what I don't believe. I'm just telling you a little bit about history. And uh, as he taught the Mark of the Beast, 6666, you know, being, you know, losing your head, whatever. He he not only taught rapture, but he taught he he taught three raptures. He used the the, the ten the ten the the virgins the 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 foolish ones and the wise ones, and the wise ones had their oil their 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 candles had the oil and they were you know they were all filled up whatever, and and the other ones didn't and their light ran out and they had to go and and get some more oil for their candles. And while they did, the bridegroom came and, and took him away. You know, he, that was the first rapture, you know. And so he's coming for his brides. And this is where religion, you know, was like, so you, you, you want to be his bride. You got to walk in your walk in holiness. You got to walk and you got to become holy. You got to walk in, and you got to become righteous. You got to, you know, confess your sins. You have to get rid of your sins. You have to do good, do good, do good, do good, do good, do good, do good. Okay. And I was I, I used to live in fear, I man. I would live in fear. I'm like, you know, because 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 guess what? At the same time, the church was telling me I'm a sinner, saved by just saved by grace, but I'm still a sinner. And here they are telling me I'm a sinner. And then on 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 one hand, and on the other hand, they're telling me that God's upset with me and He's going to puke me out because I'm lukewarm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I ain't going up at the first. I'm not going up. I'm I'm like, hopefully now. Then he taught mid, you know, mid trip is going to be a lot of hard, you know, whatever some. Some rough times are going to come and, and, you know, and you're going to get your act together. And, uh, you know, Lori got her act together. She, she went up with the first bunch. Now, hopefully this, after three and a half years of, you know, a little bit of tribulation, I get to go up and I, I'm like, 
please, please, please. And then because if you don't, then the great tribulation comes, you know, and that's where the mark of the beast, you don't take it. You're going to lose your head. You're going to be martyred. Da, 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 da. I'm a baby. I don't like pain. I don't like pain at all. You put me out and you, you know, you can pull my tooth, tooth when you pull me out. You can do whatever you want if I'm, if I'm out. But if not, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not good with pain, you know? And so I'm like, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. So, but, so, but he, he, he told all, and, 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 and so all throughout my life, okay, it was supposed to happen. It was supposed to take place. These things, because of the his, historical approach. You guys are too young in the Lord to remember that there was a book that came out prior to 1988 that was big, big in Christianity, and it was called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. You still might be able to get it. 88 Reasons Why Jesus Might Return, no, not might, will return in 1988 using the prophecies of the book of Revelation and, and Daniel. And in fact, not only did it do that, but it pinpointed, it pinpointed uh, September 9th through September 11th. And so in 1988, people started, you know, quitting their jobs, especially around that time, because they didn't need to work anymore. They stopped paying their, their mortgages, whatever, because Jesus was coming back. The prophecies, what was happening in the world, you know, uh, news media started picking up more of catastrophes that were happening worldwide. There were some wars that were taking place and whatever. So anyway, what happened? 1988, September 9th, September 11th came, nothing happened. And then I remember, I don't know if my mom remembers, but we were being told now the Jupiter effect. Because in the book of Revelation, you know, it's talking about all these cataclysmic events and this and that and the other thing. And, and, uh, and so in 1992, there was going to be a phenomenon where for the first time in the world, in the history of the world, you're going to have the sun and all the planets were going to be in, 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 in alignment with each other in a single line. And that was going to wreak so much havoc on gravitational forces and gravitational pulls. And there was going to be, you know, uh, the rising of the seas and tidal waves and, and earthquakes. And, and this, I, I don't know if you guys heard it, but it was out there. The Jupiter effect. 1992 came, Jupiter effect came, and it went. You know, and then on and on in the year 2000, remember the year 2000? Doom and gloom. I mean, people were living in fear. This is it. There, again, things were happening in the world and Jesus was coming back and they had it nailed down to, to uh, 12, 31, 11, 59, and 59 seconds. Why? Because in the year 2000, when, it, when, when all the computers, when everything hit 2000, boom, Everything was going to go into complete chaos, and the world was going to end. I don't know if you remember Y2K. And then uh, three years ago, my daughter called me up, and she said, Dad, and she was crying. Am I right, Lori? Yep. She was in tears because she was so convinced because the prophets, and I'm talking about prophets from, from, from well, I mean, established ministers and preachers that many of us love dearly, were convinced that the September, I think it was September of, night of 2021 or whatever, there was going to be an, an, an event, the blood moons, there was going to be an event that was going to be so spectacular and so cataclysmic. And they learned from past history, so they didn't want to say, Jesus is coming back. But they, they did... Something spectacular, amazing is going to happen, leading people to believe that that's what they were talking about because that's what they were talking about. So my, da my, my daughter said, Dad, I want, I want to see Jesus, but I want to get married and I want to have children. Can I just get married and can I have children before he comes back? But he's come back, Dad. I, 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 I'm supposed to be happy, but I'm not. I want to get married. I want and well, I'm not going to tell you what I told her. You know, I'm not going to tell you that I told her Allie, don't worry, he's not coming back. Not then, not, not at that time. So anyway, she's married and she has children. But anyway, just having fun with you guys. The historical approach. Now here's number two. Here's number two approach. It's the preterist approach. This approach views the fulfillment of Revelation's prophecies 
as having occurred already in what is now the ancient past, not long after the author's own time. Now remember I told you, historically, in the apophrical writings, all the symbolism that's in, is in the book of Revelation, that we try to figure out what it is, back then, historically, other writings, the time, the place, they totally knew and understood what was being spoken about, was what was being, what was being, what what John was addressing, and uh, already, and what is now the ancient past, not long after the author's own time. Thus, the fulfillment was future from the point of view of the inspired author, but it is past from our vantage point in history. Some, some preterists believe that the final chapters of Revelation look forward to the second coming of Christ. Others think that everything in the book reaches culmination in the past. The third view is the futurist approach asserts that the majority of the prophecies of Revelation have never yet been fulfilled and await future fulfillment. Futurist interpreters usually apply everything after chapter 4 to a relatively brief period of time before the return of Christ. And um, um, like I just had somebody who follows me and uh, they sent me something um, about, and, and it was a futurist. And he covered himself. He covered himself. Because in his prophesying or prophetically uh, interpreting the book of Revelation, he was looking at what's taking place in Israel or what was taking place in Israel and how, you know, Iran, you know, uh, Russia, which is not yet involved, or China, which is not yet involved. Or, but in, he was indicating that they were lining up against him and everything was looking like it was going to be. Um, but the prophecies say nobody was standing by Israel, nobody. And so he said, so is it the end or isn't the end? I don't know. And then he tried to make America is the key because right now America is lining up with Israel. So that would mean that that prophecy can't be, it can't be, revelation can't be fulfilled now because Israel has a nation um, that's, that's lining up with it. But, and then he said, but watch this. If this happens, beware. If all of a sudden the United States pulls out and says, Israel, we can't help you. You're on your own. We got too much at our border. We got too much in our own country. We're dealing with Taiwan, with China. We, we, we just can't help anymore. We, 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 we have to leave. You're on your own. Then watch out. Jesus is soon to come. So this is this is this would be um, considered a futurist. And I don't know if you guys have heard that. Um, you know, if you've heard that. And then the idealist. The idealist approach to Revelation does not attempt to find individual fulfillment of the visions, but takes Revelation to be a great drama to transcendent spiritual realities, such as the perennial conflict between Jesus Christ and Satan, between the saints and the anti-Christian world, world powers, the heavenly vindication of the martyrs, and the final victory of Christ and his saints. Fulfillment is seen either as entirely spiritual or as recurrent, finding representative expression in various historical events throughout the age, rather than in one time-specific fulfillment. The prophecy is thus rendered applicable to Christians in any age. So what that is meaning is that in any time that you can go back in history, you're going to see a period where it looks like good is fighting evil, where it looks like some, some factor or faction is rising up against Christians and there's, there's, um, there's, there's martyrdom, there's persecution. And you, you can see that. Um, there's, you know, Christ... You know, uh, good versus evil, the Satan, all throughout. You know, the the the, the ten um, emperors of Rome. You know, um, all other crusades and ventures throughout history. So this these this group is basically saying, 
it's it's not pinpointing any specific time. It's just it's just um, writings that introduce us to the to constant struggle and victory and struggles and victory and struggles and victories that one can see in the lives of Christians and in the world of Christianity. So that is an introduction to the book of Revelation. All right. And now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first three chapters um, next time we meet. And then after that, starting with chapter four, we're going to go from chapter four to chapter 11. And we're going to give you uh, a commentary. All right. On what we're reading from each position so that you can look at and listen to and read your notes on each position's commentary on what's going on to see which one hermeneutically, contextually, historically, in your spirit, which one you best identify with. And we're not going to ask you to tell us which ones you do and which ones you don't. This is for you guys to grab hold of truths for yourself and to know why you believe what you believe and not to be carried here and there to and fro by every wind of doctrine. All right. I hope that makes sense. Oh, uh, boy, I have some other good stuff here, but we're out of time. And I'll, uh, we're going to next week. I got to, next time we meet in two weeks, it's going to be, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Do you guys enjoy, do you guys enjoy tonight? Yes. Yeah.